Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. We are your hosts, Ken Seymour and Richard Geiger. How are you, good sir? Uh, doing pretty good. Little, uh, little tired, a little worn out. Ready to talk about something that's exciting. That's right. Fun. Something to get to get the blood moving, to get uh, to get our joy of comic books coming back. We have a special guest joining us for the second time on. Everybody loves pudding. We have the fantastic, the incredibly talented, Mr. Stuart Sager. Woo! Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I I am happy to be back. It's been a little while, hasn't it? Yeah. We we ran into you. I believe it was Indie PopCon in twenty nineteen. Or was it Fort Wayne? Or was it Fort Wayne? I I start to lose track. Yeah. I think we saw you in both places, but we may have talked to you. I've, one I've been to both. I yeah. can tell you that. I know I'm going to any PopCon again here in a couple months or a couple, might even be a couple weeks. So it looks pretty, yeah. uh, pretty interesting, pretty exciting as always. But uh, I actually just got ba- uh, got back as of this recording from Fan Expo Cleveland. Ooh. Right. I wanted to go to that, and I was unable to. I'm going to do the Fan Expo. Sh- Chicago. I had a friend who was there and it sounded like they had a pretty good guest list. They tend to do quite a good job on that sort of thing. In fact, yeah. that's that's going to be our, our upcoming episode here in a minute. But enough about that. What has been going on since we saw you uh, last in 2019? It's been a while. What have you been up to? A lot of things. So, um, uh, well, the day job is still making comic books, which I'm happy to say, even though uh, the pandemic hit and some people got told don't draw anything. Um, I, I know a lot of publishers sort of put some things on a hiatus there for a while. And while for a lot of people, I think that was really, really tough. Um, for me, I was kind of happy to have the breather. Uh, it allowed me a chance to look around and sort of consider some other things to work on. And um, I started, like a lot of people, doing a lot online and engaging with my fans that way. And I had been on Facebook pretty regularly. And I remember <clears throat> something came up where kind of out of the blue, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of covers here recently for Dynamite. I've done um, Kiss and Army of Darkness and Evil Ernie here recently. That's um, one of my favorites. Deja Thoris and some other things. And, um, and while in talking about that, I mentioned Shiver in the Dark. And uh, for those who don't know, Shiver in the Dark is the first comic I ever made. It was one that I self-published all the way back. Uh, Diamond distributed the first one in 2002. <clears throat> Checked with gray hairs. Um, <laughs> but um, I realized it was the 20th anniversary. And when I mentioned it online, uh, there were lots of people who were my fans who knew me from those other projects. Well, maybe the Joker covers I did or Transformers or something who said, wait, what's this other thing you, you worked on? Uh, and uh, in talking about it, I pulled out some of the original issues and showed them off. And people were saying, you know, when when can we get more? And I just thought, what a great opportunity. The, you know, the publishers are giving us a break. I'm not going to be going to conventions. It's the 20th anniversary. I've always wanted to finish it. In fact, I thought I was going to several years ago. And then I got, I'm trying to remember what job it was. I think I got asked to do work on the Superman Man of Steel movie. And I wasn't going to say no to that. And it's just one way or another, something kept, you know, getting in the way and so i said okay this is it let's get done the 20th anniversary so i just ran a kickstarter campaign for it and in fact i'm mailing out all the books in about seven days we everything has arrived everything is ready to go and i'm really pretty proud of them i can show you some of them here um i'm actually working on a full color second series it's picking up right where the first one left off um sweet and i'm kind of excited about that because um i'm i know what i'm doing a little bit better now I still remain very proud of the original Shiver in the Dark comics. This is These are some of the covers for them. Oh, man. Let's see if I can show these off here really well. Oh. And these were really deluxe books, so they're square bound. Because these were 20th anniversary editions, I added new material. But they, um, they were square bound and uh, limited. Only made 300 sets. But the... Um, but this got the juices flowing again, and I'm working on the new series. And because I know what I'm doing a little bit better, and I can plan it out better, and you know, I'm I'm grown. I know what I'm doing now. I can bite more off. I can do more with it. So one of the things that's kind of fun is um, I've got some all stars making some covers for me for it. I'm still going to have my own covers, but um, if there's one thing you learn, don't announce anything until you have it in hand. Right? <laughs> anything can go wrong. 
So I've got a couple covers lined up, but one of them is already turned in and I got a really pretty one from Jay Lee. And I just love Jay's work. He's really skilled. I think he fits the, the, the sort of horror aspect of my comic well. And, um, you know, we talked about what the thing should look like and I just kind of envisioned what it was gonna look like. And it was like, he read my mind, just gave it right there. And I didn't give him any guidance. We talked about it a little bit, he described it. And then, you know, I waited a couple of weeks and there it was in physical form. So that was great. Well, anyway, you wanna know what I'm doing? That's been the thing that's been keeping me doing. busy. I'm still, I'm still, in fact, I'm working on a brand new series for Dynamite. That is Army of Darkness reanimator crossover the um the lovecraft story it looks really cool so yeah it's gonna be cool lots of glowing syringes of goo <laughs> now we i mean we we can see the numbers but because we're talking on a podcast i'll ask the the question uh what was your goal to, for money to be raised for your uh kickstarter and what have you actually gotten for your kickstarter okay so now that the whole thing is over I can reveal the, the, the dark secret of all of it. Um, the goal didn't matter much to me because I knew I was going to do it. <laughs> and, and I shouldn't even say this, but this is the truth. Okay. Um, I, I knew I was going to do it. And I did mine backwards in very many ways in that, for example, I made sure I had everything completely done and I went ahead and uh, ordered the printing before I even had the money. And one of the reasons I did that is there are a lot of paper shortages going on right now and a lot of supply things. And my printer said, we can do it. And I said, okay, then let's just do it now. And it's how I'm able to ship them so quickly because the thing just ended like two weeks ago. So um, my goal I listed is $1,000. And I figured I would probably get that right away. And I got it in four minutes. And my goal, my goal, I didn't actually have sort of a mental goal because I just kind of thought um, I'm committed to it no matter what. I think it actually raised, I wanted to get 25K. And the only reason I wanted 25K is we got to over 20. And as soon as you're at 20, you want 25. As soon as you got 25, you want 30. Right. And so I think it ended at uh, 23. And, um, and I'm actually pretty pleased with that for several reasons. One is that um, uh, a lot of people who were fans of it before, they got behind it this time again. And one of the things I was reminded of was, even though I added new material to this book, you know, I still got that many people to pledge for a book that's basically reprint. And that's kind of an exciting thing because the, the book had gone through Diamond. I did gussy it up a lot and I did add new material, but undeniably there were people who said, I got this, but I want the extra material. Um, the new series is going to be a little bit different because it's all new, but um, I had never done a Kickstarter. I had no idea what to expect. Um, some people said that some of the choices I made were a little bit different because I didn't offer like a digital version. I really wanted this to be a high-end physical format. I mean, I hope you guys can see how, how big and thick these books are. I weighed them. This is the... Um, this is, let's see if I can hold this. This is a Kiss cover that I did for Dynamite here recently, and it's a fine comic book. Uh, this weighs more than twice what this weighs. It's just that I spent that much on the stock and the binding, and it's a, it's a, just a, a really deluxe format. But as a result, I also only made 300 copies. So there were people who maybe, um, because it was such a high-end product, the price point was a little bit higher. And I didn't feel so bad doing that because it was reprint and that the cheaper editions had been out before. This was a, an anniversary edition. And if my price point scared you off, don't worry. The next series, the full color one, it's going to be priced like a regular comic. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, though. There's there's a place for online, for sure. I mean, it's, it's definitely convenient. It allows people to get access to, to, to books that they maybe missed when they initially came out. And they don't want to have to dig through... Uh, the local comic book shop, but why wouldn't you want to dig through the local comic book shop? Because that's great in and of itself. But the physical, the physical just has something extra to it. It makes it feel more real. You just there's a certain level of detachment when you have a, a digital only. It's not something that you get that kind of visceral reaction to. At least for me. Well, and, I'm the and, same way. And the weight you said too. So like that that's got even more substance to it too when you have that weight and you flip through each individual page 
it just has a completely different sensory overload in a certain sense than looking at it and scrolling through it with the mouse. I have not read a ton of comics online, uh, certainly not relative to as I have as I have on paper. But um, yeah, they are different beasts. I saw a really great presentation that um, Scott McCloud did about digital comics when they were very new. And he was talking about how they would sort of behave differently and how they could behave differently. And I think for me, he's the guy who hit the nail in the head. It's like they don't really substitute each other. They do different things and might be a good idea if we think of them as different things. And it's one of the reasons where I thought, you know, when I designed this, I designed it to be this. I didn't design it to be that. Um, I know uh, there are lots of different you know, schools of thought on this. I had a friend in college, he and I used to debate this all the time. So let's see if I can get this right. I think it might've been Mark Millar. There was somebody who had the idea, was making the argument that every panel in the comic book should be like a horizontal. So it matches like a TV or a movie screen as though that was, that was what people were used to looking at. If we presented a comic book in that way, it's, um, it's more accessible, it's more standardized. And I thought the argument had some validity to it, but at the same time, I just said, no, 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 no. A comic is a comic. It shouldn't try to be a movie. Let's have the comic book just do the things that a comic book does really well. And I try to remember that when I made this because I always tell young, young creators, you know, every time you turn a page, that top panel up here, that's when you can surprise somebody. When you turn the page, you can see everything on two pages and you can read it. But whatever's happening there, they don't know what's going to happen up here. So a good surprise is always when you turn the page. That's, That's what this thing kind of inherently does. And I, I would rather embrace that rather than swim against it. Mike Grell had something almost identical to say at the panel that he had. Did he? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. The, the art of storytelling through comics. Yeah. It's not a secret, you know, but um, – I always think one of the really fun things to do when I have somebody who's not a big comic book reader is if I give them one of my comics and after they've read it, I said, can I just ask you a few questions about it? And this is, this is for my go-to question is I always say, did you read the words first and then look at the pictures or did you look at the pictures first and then read the words? And the answer that I like best, this is what makes me feel happiest is when they say, I don't know. <laughs> and the thing was so immersive that they didn't they just went through it it didn't it didn't stop and start it wasn't herky jerky they just they didn't separate out and if they and they always feel bad they're like oh my gosh I, I don't remember i can't tell and i just feel like nope that's exactly what i want now this is of much less importance but interesting enough anyway you made all these uh copies you said 300 i do believe uh -huh. Are you keeping any for yourself? Yeah, always. <laughs> we have to. In the, yeah. in the safe. Tucked away. Yeah, I was I always keep a few. I know some people who don't. I was talking to a creator I knew I know who actually left comics. He he pursued a, a job in the toy industry he really, really liked and he'd self-published some things and I asked him about it. And he said he about a month ago just got rid of them all and it broke my heart. And I thought, oh, why? And I there's no good answer other than I don't, I, for me, there's no good answer. Like to me, I always want to have some of them. Usually if I work on a book, I always pick out two copies and one is a keep for forever. And then one is a delicately read, right. you know, and they keep them both. But cause I think that the funny thing about it is if you've ever known somebody who had someone in the family, they knew when they were, you know, they said, Oh, well, my grandfather did X, Y, or Z, you know, or my grandfather wrote for the newspaper for 20 years. Do you have any clippings? And I'm stunned how many people say, you know, we have one little thing. Right. And, and, um, uh, I don't know. It, it was hard to get here and all of these tickle, a comic book takes a lot of time and effort to make. And, um, I can tell you this. So I'm married, my wife's in the other room, but I can tell you this. I do remember going on a first date one time. I had just come out with the first issue of a comic book and the, the girl I went on a date with, uh, was a sculptor. And I didn't know her terribly well, but I thought, well, how can I, how can I break the ice? And I brought a comic book and I said, I made this. And it was just like, she just said, what do you mean you made this? And, well, I wrote it. I drew it. I did everything. And it's kind of funny. Had I handed her all the original art pages, it would have made total sense. But she was a fine art person. 
the fact that it was a printed finished project, there was a gap there that she had never been a part of. She'd made lots of art, but this idea of something produced for this consumer level of, of consumption, you know what I mean? That was very, very different for her. And I, I, I can remember even, you know, I wrote it, I drew it going through all the points, but there was this breakdown, like, well, how did it get to be this? And that was probably the first 20 minutes of me talking to her. So that's that's definitely a start. I I, I would almost like you got to add in, you know, like those games, two truths and a falsehood. So you like you keep a picture oh, yeah. of like the the press from the Gutenberg Bible. This is what I used to make it with to actually create right. the pages. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I listen, I mean, a lot of people have handled these comics, but there's a little bit of a, a sense of a mystery. I mean, look. I've, I've self-published these. I wrote them, I drew them, I scanned the art, I made the digital file, I took it to the printer. I even watched it roll off the machine. And even though I'm watching it happen, there's something kind of magical about it. It's like, you know, I can remember, you know, there was one day this didn't exist at all. And now here it is, you know, out of thin air. There is something magical about that. Well, when you And if you've ever made a comic book, there's the best feeling when you open the case and you pull them out the first time. That's the truth. I, I can believe that for sure. Um, when you approached going back to this, what was the mindset? What you know, obviously you wanted to to give something a little more, but how how do you go back to something that's already kind of finished in your mind? How do you revisit it and redistribute it and make it something the same but new? What's that process? So the story never got, I never got to finish the story. That's the big thing. So I'd had the next two and a half issues. I mean, I've had more than that plotted out, but the next two and a half issues are really sort of scripted as well. So they were sort of in the other room looking at me like, you know, like somebody I wasn't doing my job. Like, you know, if your parents ever look at you like the yard's still not mowed, you said you're going to do that. That's kind of how this thing haunted me. So that was easy. But the tricky thing, I think what you're getting at is, I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago. Right. And my skills aren't the same. And so I think that the best answer here is one that I actually rip off from John Byrne. And he was talking about um, fans would bring original art to him at a convention to get signed. Now we're going to laugh at this now. Okay. Because at the time this, <laughs> this made more sense. Now the needle is moved, but he said, you know, people would come and they'd bring me art pages to sign maybe for something like Iron Fist when it was early in my career, when he wasn't really quite at his peak yet. And they, he said very often people would bring it and they would apologize. They'd say, you know, I really like your X-Men or Avengers. I just can't afford it or whatever. And the reason I say we laugh at this is because we also can't afford the Iron Man or Iron Fist now. Though, <laughs> yeah, it's all that expensive. Yeah. But he used to say, he used to say, you know, I knew that I was younger. My skills weren't quite as good. I think I remember reading him say this. He said, but, um, but I worked just as hard on it. You know, that I put all I could into that page. That is a snapshot of who I was and where I was and what I could do. And if I look at it through the lens of did I try hard, I can remain really proud of it. And I think that's kind of where I stood on this as well. Uh, the, I had drawn a lot. I, I had worked for my high school paper, my college paper. Um, I'd made Batman and Witch and Hour and The Shadow and Spider-Man sample pages. But every time I made something like that, it was kind of like me trying to guess what the thing was supposed to look like or, or, or fill in shoes that were already there. If you draw Batman sample pages, you know, if you've not drawn a lot, you're trying to sort of figure out what you think Batman is. And in my case, it would be like, okay, so what does Neil Adams and Jim Aparo draw Batman like? And that's a trap. You know, you're never going to make your best work that way. You're trying to be something you aren't. And I didn't realize how much that was going on until I wrote my own story. And then I sat down to draw it and it was almost like I froze in front of the drafting table. And I thought, well, I don't even know what this world looks like. And then I said, well, you get to decide right now. And in a way that was kind of spooky because I hadn't explored it a lot. And I thought, God, don't pick the wrong thing. You know, what, what style should it be like? And it was coming at a moment where I felt like I was really wanting to do everything and experiment. So I said, kind of crazy, but I said, Hey, if I'm doing all the art myself, I can do whatever I want if it makes sense. So whatever is happening at that moment, draw the art, have the art style change to fit the emotional 
impact of that moment. If people are fighting and arguing, it'll be, you know, aggressive, scratchy lines. If somebody's falling in love, I can watercolor it and make it soft and warm. And, you know, the, the art just has to fit the story. It was kind of what I said earlier about pictures and text. If you, if somebody's reading my comic book and they recognize that I, that I changed the art style, that probably means the art style didn't hit the moment or the, 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 the beat in the story as well as it should have. If, if they're both flowing together, I can take you anywhere and it works just fine. And through that lens, I remain really proud of this. The thing that I think is actually tricky for me now is that I've drawn more and I've sort of developed a couple different styles to go back to this with that open-mindedness of, okay, and I reach now, you know, because when I do a cover for Dynamite, they have some expectation of what I'm going to turn in. You know, I, if, if I, you know, if, if the next time I do a cover of Kiss, if I sculpt Gene Simmons out of graph it and turn that in that might not be what they want it might look really cool <laughs> but it's not what they're expecting well if i'm making a comic book and i'm the editor and the writer and the publisher i can do that and it's it's for me the trick is going to be you know seeing how far i can reach before i hit a wall how's that that's the best way i can put it i do remain proud of it though and it does have some bumps and bruises but it's it was an honest effort it is what it is now, now, as you're creating these new things and whatever these th things may be, do you go back and pull, you created these things 10 years ago. Like, I want to reference some of these things I did 10 years ago just so I can understand better what I'm doing now. Like, is that something you kind of go back and revisit the things you did, failed at doing, and just like build oh. on that for now? So I definitely reread it. And there were things where I said, like, wow, I don't remember writing this. And there were times I, it, so there are a few things that jump out. So for example, um, there's a lot more cigarette smoking in these comic books than there are now. And that's because 20 years ago, there were a lot more people smoking cigarettes. Than there so there are things like that that seem a little bit out of place. But the other funny thing about it is like, there's a, there's a, a horned devilish character in here called the Nightmare. He smokes throughout. And I remember looking at that and I thought, well, he's going to continue smoking. Nothing's going to change there. But these college girls, would they still smoke? And that's the thing I'm kind of wondering about, because on one hand, the story is the thing. But the reader brings something as well, right? I remember somebody, I'm not going to name names, but I remember an older retailer read my comic book for the first issue. And the character, the main character of the comic is a, a very sort of um, privileged, uh, rich girl who's good looking and kind of skates through life. And the story starts off with her looking for an apartment uh, off campus. She doesn't want to live in the dorms. And so she thinks that she might rent this little apartment that's above like a rundown bookstore. And he said, okay, I don't, I don't agree with this. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, I don't think that a girl with this kind of money and resources would want to live there. And I thought, oh, I absolutely think she would. Uh, there was, a, you know, when this book came out, there was this greater authenticity. You know, people were buying a lot of thrift store clothing, right? There was this sort of throwback. And I thought, you're not, you're not 18 years old. And I wasn't, didn't feel bad about him saying I wasn't 18 years old. But I just kind of thought like, yeah, you wouldn't live there if you had that opportunity. But, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, you can buy a new Van Halen T-shirt or you can have one from 1979 that's worn out in holes in it. And I know which one is cooler, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. But it didn't click with him. And it was a funny thing where I had to remind myself, it's like, no, I think my audience is going to get this. And a good example of that was I made T-shirts for this comic book and I never made T-shirts. I didn't make that many. And I got advice and I said, so what? what what sizes should i get and everybody told me get a bunch of xls a couple larges and don't get the rest and i didn't think that was right i thought i think people are wearing their t-shirts small i ordered a ton of smalls a few mediums and just a couple larges and xls and i sold out of all the smalls immediately and i know it sounds kind of weird that i would but but when you're young and you don't have a lot of money to invest in this and you can make a nice piece of art but the whole thing failed because you bought the wrong size t-shirt that seems kind of tough, but I thought, again, I was like, I think I know my audience and I think I know who's going to buy this. And so you got that confidence and you write the character with whatever feels right to you, whatever, you know, even though that guy who was the retailer, he didn't, he didn't buy it. I kind of felt like 
I don't think you're the person who's more most likely to buy this anyway or to relate to this character. Well, and that's always Which going is, to be an issue, right? Because yeah. you, you've got middlemen involved and we all bring our own biases to whatever it is. And we tend to intentionally or otherwise spread those to the people that we're trying to show artwork to. It's true. And I'll say this as well. I think that my, my rule of thumb on making any of this stuff is that, um, gosh, I've said this so many times and the older I get, the, the more it rings true. Uh, whether you're a, a comic artist or musician or anybody making anything creative, we have so many choices right now. We have so many things we can like and ingest. If you think of all the movies you haven't seen that you're interested in, that I haven't even found time for. Um, I remember standing before all the comics on the comic book rack and I thought, how much money would I have to have to buy every comic I like? Like that would be a lot. Okay. And so I said, well, wait a minute. How much money do I have to have to buy every comic I love? And what I realized was most people only can have the money to buy the comics they really love. So if I make a comic and both of you guys like it, that's probably not enough to get you to buy it. So it's better off to have half the people love your book and half the people hate it than to have everybody like it. And that's a weird thing, but I, I really kind of prescribe to that. And so if you're, again, if you're a writer, an artist, a musician or whatever, you know, the record you love is the one you buy and the one you keep playing. The comic you love is the one you'll buy and not just buy, but that's why people want to come meet me. So I may have a smaller audience, but they love it. And that's what I try to, that's, that's what I try to do. Well, the audience is kind of changed. I feel like a little bit in the last few years with the pandemic. Right. So like, how do you address that in such a short period of time, right? You, because you, you, you had some time to relax and kind of do things and do different pieces of work. But how did your last few years evolve along with that evolving fan base? I'm going to answer that. I don't know. Uh, I'm making it up. I'm making this answer up right now because I hadn't considered this. Uh, <laughs> I think the biggest thing is that they changed, but so did I. So I've got two variables there. That's a, that's a big thing. Um, but then also, you know, you try to make work you believe in, but it also doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, the industry is going to limit a few things you can do. You know, I, I've often thought it would be really cool to make a book that's bigger, but a lot of comic shops, they want a comic book size, you know, you, you, you choose your battles. Um, but I will say this, relating to your question, prior to the pandemic, um, a lot of creators went to a lot of comic book shows, and I was one of them. And one of the things that I noticed is I could go to a show, if I was in Chicago, whatever, in 2012, if I went to there in 2013, there was a good chance I would see a lot of the same people. And then the same in 14, the same in 15. But after about three or four years, it was very likely that a lot of people I'd seen, I wasn't seeing anymore. Um this is a hobby that people's tastes change always, whether there's a pandemic or not. Um, they're, uh, sometimes their tastes don't change, but the thing they liked, they got it all. You know, if you were an X-Men fan, I know guys who literally, they said, I have every X-Men. I still want to read comics. I guess I'm going to either read Avengers or I'm going to read Justice League or something. And so you can, um, it's, that, that was one of the lessons I learned about this. So this book, it's 20 years old so many collectors you know if they you could have been collecting for 15 years and never heard of this thing so on one hand it's reprint on the other hand it's an all-new audience so when when you have the pandemic happen in 2020 and now we're we're approaching halfway through 20 uh 22 and the pandemic really happened in 19 about three years ago in my mind, that's almost the cycle that I experienced of people rolling over in conventions. So whether there was a pandemic or not, we were going to have this new audience as it is. But maybe what I think you're getting at is how did the pandemic change the way we ingest comics, the way we consume them? A lot of people went digitally. Um, I, uh, I know so many people who, you know, streamed things they never thought they were going to stream ever. And now that even if the pandemic ends and if it's washed away completely, their behavior has changed. Um, I don't think we know where we are just yet. In the aftermath of the pandemic, at least as it relates to this hobby, 
Um, I've been trying to think about what are some things that are going to change that maybe we haven't considered. And the biggest one that comes to mind that I'm kind of dreading is um, we've got conventions that are coming back right now and I'm excited to meet fans again. But I think there are a lot of creators, particularly older ones, that we may not see again. Uh, maybe they used to travel and it was tiring and they felt they, they found out what it was like to not have to do it anymore. And they say, I'm not going back. Or maybe they're older and they have health issues and they just say, I'm not comfortable going back. It was always exhausting. There is a health factor now. There may have other, there were a lot of people who had to get other forms of income. And now that they've developed that, they're not going to conventions. And so um, I think the last time I saw Neil Adams was C2E2 2019. And I used to see him eight times a year. And now I'm never going to see him again. And that we all know that Neil passed, yeah. but Neil was active online. There were a lot of people who said, well, I never saw Neil before at all, but because he was so active on Facebook, I got more of him than I ever got before. But the deck has been reshuffled. And I don't think we know what we're going to end up with yet. I mean, I really think it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's going to change a lot. It's changed a lot in the last year and it may change more than the next. Well, I'm kind of curious how also you've, you've always been very involved with, um, smaller companies uh, that that uh, whether it's your own independent releases or dealing with dynamite or or whoever I mean you've done done work for everybody it seems but just about <laughs> the the large the big two that everybody always think about between Marvel and DC have both undergone some substantial shifts over the last few years uh, from ownership to to the way that they run their business to a variety of other things. And I'm, I'm mildly concerned how this is going to affect the, the way that the artists are able to contribute and we're, we're, we're able to see what is, is released. Have you, have you felt any of that at all? Have, do you still feel like the lines are open and that there's, there's plenty of life or has, have, have things changed significantly that they're not the same kind of players that they were and now there's an opening for these other companies to kind of take their place i think the thing for them and i'm shooting from the hip here i've given this a lot of thought i think they're big and they can they can they can move quickly the way you know a, a giant ocean liner can move quickly but it can't change directions as quickly uh in the wake of all that, there are a lot of opportunities for, we've seen how many really cool independent books uh, um, Image has put out and really all the publishers are, you know, finding their niches right now. Um, I think we've got a lot of diversity right now. I think we're also neglecting a whole lot of audiences that still haven't comic books, haven't figured out how to reach. I'm, uh, I'm kind of a fan of seventies romance comics. There's nothing like that. Um, I have some elements of romance comics in mind, particularly because I like them. But, um, you know, that's, that's, that's an audience that's underserved. Is there an opportunity to make a comic book there? Absolutely. Is there an audience? Maybe. Is there an audience that we can reach? I don't know. Mm. And that's a tricky thing. If, if, if somebody makes an awesome romance comic and you're your regular comic shop, you may just say like, I don't even know how to order this. I don't know how to get the customer in here who would like this. Sometimes the change has to be really slowly, and that's sort of the, the Marvel and DC thing. And sometimes it can happen, you know, out of nowhere. You have books like Stray Dogs that, you know, really cool. I somebody told me they're going to do a book of just dogs, and I said, "Well, good luck," uh, but it was great, right? <laughs> so there are definitely some opportunities, but I think a couple things come to mind is um, this was for a long time a hobby that people engaged with. They could engage with it. I'm going way back here, very casually via a spinner rack. You know, a comic book could be thrown onto whatever you're buying. Um, uh, it's not a cheap hobby anymore. No, I do think the quality of the product we're getting is near an all-time high, certainly in terms of production. But um, I, I think the thing that's interesting is a lot of times comic book people they they suffer from tunnel vision a little bit and that they don't look outside of themselves. Uh, I'll bring this up. I don't know what the, the circulation is of the newest Batman comic book, 
but um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was on a panel discussion and it was uh, talking about um, underground comics. And, and one of the debate was what was an underground comic? It doesn't mean the same thing it meant in the seventies. And I proposed maybe Batman is an underground comic. And people thought, how can that be? And I said, well, at the time, I think it's circulation was something like 90,000. And I live in Indianapolis. And I said, the Indianapolis Star, our newspaper, our Sunday edition is more than 90,000. And it's not national. You know, you start breaking down these numbers of what these circulation numbers are across the country. Maybe everything is really underground. We have, it's been a long time since we've had something that's a comic book, not a TV show, not a movie, not a superhero, but a comic book. It was so widely circulated. The last comic book that I can think of that had a really broad reach in circulation that was easy to pick up well, was Mad Magazine, if it counts as a comic book. And it never got factored into what we think of comic books as being. But it was a magazine. It went to all these different newsstands. I mean, if it was 12 midnight and I said, I got to get the new Batman or I got to get the new Mad Magazine, I know it should be easier to get. Mm -hmm. So comic books are, are, are in this niche right now that I think people kind of forget how small they are anyway. And then as far as what's going to happen with the companies, Marvel and DC, they've got, they've got bosses now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. This is, there's, I, I don't know. I always wonder how much freedom you're going to have. You know, there's so many stories about whether it was like, um, so many creators, uh, you know, Bill Cavage was offered X-Men and he said, uh-uh. Give me something you guys aren't going to worry about that I can play with. And they said, how about New Mutants? And it was great. But he he wanted that bigger playground. You know, I I don't know what's going on in Marvel and DC with Spider-Man or Batman right now, but I can't imagine the list of of do's and don't do's right now. Right. They've got to be long. Now, just just so. as, a, as a note for our listeners that, that are <laughs> unaware, as, as somebody that is um, mildly OCD and uh, nitpicky on certain things, Personally, I think Mad was both a comic and a magazine, but it's about when you're talking about in the run because it had that formatting change. It was at one point released in a format that was comic book size, but then went yeah. to the full magazine size. And that's the change for me. As soon as it's not in that comic book formatting, it's not a comic book anymore. Okay. So I am by no means going to say you're wrong. And Scott McCloud would say you're absolutely wrong because comics is picture side by side. Like through that definition, you know, uh, the instruction manual on a, you know, how to open up a, a, a Ziploc bag becomes comics. Right. Right. But I agree with you. And I think this is a really big deal because um, uh, I, I have long wondered if one of the things that maybe held comic book backs held comic books back was merely the format. You know, DC is making this black label thing, and I'm really wondering what that means. You know, is there a psychological component of just that thing being larger, weighing more? What weight does that carry? I don't think we even know. They might know. They might be doing a bunch of research, but if they are, they're not telling us. Lock up some people in a room. <laughs> Read these. Tell me what you think. We'll be back in a week. Well, you know, is it, you guys have done this for a long time. Is there a difference between a comic and a graphic novel? Um, I don't think so. No. But... But you meet people all the time who, you know, particularly in academics, you know, there's there's a, a, a glitz to that title of graphic novel that is, I don't know. I mean, it's the difference between a rock and a stone. It's got, it's got a, little, a little more longevity to it. You don't have to feel like you're, if you're like me, that you're having to, to handle it with kid gloves quite so much. Because with the regular comic, you, it's so easy to dog ear and to... To, to crease and to mildly rip and just wear the edges at least with a graphic novel you got that that stronger binding that, that even if the internal pages are still a little the same consistent well, these become loaded terms right that's i mean that's the thing they they that triggered something in you emotionally where you're like uh, they like magazine and comic mean two different things to you and graphic novel clearly is the third i remember when i worked in a comic shop a long time ago when the trade paperback was new oh yeah like really new and I tried to sort out, well, how is a trade paperback different from a graphic novel? And for me, I just keyed on scale. Mm -hmm. Whereas most people would say, no, 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 it depends on whether it's new material or reprint. But at the time when all of these were new and we didn't really have the terminology worked out, comic book, trade paperback is 
comic book size, but square bound and thicker and graphic novels, magazine size. I don't think that's the, 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 um, lexicon anymore. Not so much. I mean, they're, they're all over the place and that's, that's where artists can also get to play though, by changing that, that feel and that format. Um, I mean, there's a handful of graphic novels that are just in non-traditional sizes. The, the page is, is not magazine size. It's not comic book size. It's not anything. It's almost like picking up an art book uh, in, yeah. in the way this. And that gives you certain freedom to do things that you can't normally do within the scale that you're normally working with. Well, and it's while it's not scale those are the freedoms that i tried to embrace and shiver in the dark while i changed the art style there's a it's not the same thing but there's a panel in this book or a couple panels in this where the, the main my, my main character is in college but she thinks back to when she was in high school and i thought well how do i draw that so i kind of drew it like dan DiCarlo, who drew archie for 30 or 40 years that's what high school looks like within the language of comics and so like that's that's very you know there's this art style of the cover, right? So you'd to think that you'd have her, and then in this comic book here, we would see her um, uh, represented up here. There, I love it's that. entirely mm -hmm. different, um, but it ought to trigger something emotionally. I, I, I really would like to think that every artist would, who makes comics and every writer would try to figure out different ways that they can use anything at their disposal. I mean, if we can print it, we can use it. Well, in this discussion about the size and the feel of all these different things, you had touched on way back when we started talking, uh, you were like, well, I was, I was thinking about changing a format thing, but all the distributors or all the comic book shops want a kind of form and, and function. Mm -hmm. If you could change it and they were like, that's cool, let's do it, what would your change be? So, so the truth of the matter is I probably wouldn't change it at all because I love comic books and I've got a spinner rack in the other room and I want my new comics to fit on that. I want to be able to pull off Avengers or Batman and put mine on it. So I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. But I will tell you this. A lot of times when you make a comic book, um, uh, a lot of machines these days, they're, they're designed to feed a certain size of paper. And so the... Um, if you have a machine that can print this size comic book, it's probably also a machine that can print a magazine sized book, but it cuts less off. And so you're using the same amount of paper you're using slightly less ink, but you're actually ending up with a smaller project and it has to be for the same printing cost. And so when you think about it that way, you say, well, wait a minute, if you're an art lover, why wouldn't you want your art big? Um, I actually think that we're going to end, we might end up with, um, um, not so much a format change in terms of scale, but I think we might start ending up with a world that gives us a strange format change of content, contents. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, um, digital printing has gotten so cheap. We've got like variant covers right now. And sometimes Marvel or DC or someone will, they'll have like an all-star big book. It'll be like Jim Lee's doing Batman again. And they say, well, let's just print an issue with just the pencils. Right. You know, with digital printing, what if we go down a path where you can select your format, how big the book is, the paper you want it on. Maybe it's uh, an artist you love and you say, I don't even want the word balloons. You could turn that off. Hmm. Um, can I have just the pencils? Can I have just the inks? Can I have a page that's the pencils and next to it, the inks, so I can compare the two? Can I have one that is, you know, the finished page, pencil inks and color? And then, you know, I mean we've got all these, these files and all this information, we maybe could have a situation where the thing can be tailored to what we want. And although, I don't think we're that far off from getting there. Although that would probably just absolutely uh, drive uh, Overstreet bonkers <laughs> as they try to. I don't know how Overstreet is hanging on already. I mean, <laughs> I, that is to say, I like Overstreet. I always get the Overstreet, but you know how you list every variant. Right. You know, if there's anything that I really love, gosh, I really love legacy numbering. Please, if you guys are out there listening, please put legacy numbering on everything. I agree. Um, nothing is harder when you're trying to go back and read X-Men and you realize, wait, which, what is astonishing? Where does this go? Which volume am I in? I don't right. understand what's happening. Well, before we finish up. Uh, sure. 
what new neat projects other than the the fantastic Kickstarter that just finished do you have coming up that you're really excited about? That's believe me, that is by far the biggest. I'm working on it all the time. Um, I have been doing more painting, so that's that for me artistically. This is what's exciting. I'm working on this book, and like I'm painting. I, I'm working on panels right now, and a lot of them are gouache. I don't use gouache that much before, so I'm rendering the art differently, which allows me to color it differently and get a different look. Mm. Um, you know, the the fan who buys the book, all they know is the finished piece. They may realize, hey, this looks different. They may not know how I got there. I know how I got there, and I'm re-engaging with experimenting, and, and um, not everything is working either, and that's kind of exciting. Um, if I, if somebody says, Hey, you know, make me whatever, a, a kiss cover and I want it penciled and inked and I want it strong black and white and digital colored and Photoshop using a certain style, I can do that. And I know what it's going to look like, but, um, there's not a, I'm actually having a little bit more discovery. Um, I've actually, uh, I did some acrylic painting that I scanned in and was, was altering in ways I hadn't altered before. And it's, it's very easy to sometimes like, there's this thing when people type on a keyboard, um, back when there were typists, uh, <laughs> there were words that people could type where rather than typing T H E, they would type the word, the, it would just come out back. And there are sometimes I think when artists are writing or excuse me, drawing or coloring things come out that quickly, they're used to these series of steps. And when I'm doing something different, I haven't done it before. It doesn't just turn on automatically like that. So there's a little bit of an idea of like, oh, what if the is not T-H-E? What if it's that? And it's a, a you know, a, a dialect, T-H-A. I hadn't thought about doing that. So there's a like a, a change in your thought process that's kind of happening. I am happy to doing more uh, books with Dynamite. I'm really hoping I can get enough things done in time because they've launched a really cool uh, Vampirilla Year One. And I'd like to make a, a variant cover for that. So I've been wanting to do a Vampirilla cover for a while. It'll mean I miss a couple of days to work on my baby. I've neglected you for so long. I'm so sorry. And you're <laughs> going to get pushed aside for just a moment to make a Vampirilla. But, um, and then the other thing is I'm really happy to get back to shows. Um, a really cool show I'm going to this Friday is the Windy City Pulp and Paper Show. Uh, I am stunned how many people don't know about this show. Um, it is not comic books. There will be some comic books there, but it's really pulps and science fiction and older stuff in the thirties and forties. And I might be the youngest guy in the room. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people there who have never turned on a computer in their life. So if you want to see what comic book conventions were like 30 years ago, go to this thing. It's really pretty exciting. Um, other than that, um, you know, I'll tell you what, I got an airbrush here recently. And I never really worked much with airbrush, but I was trying to figure out a way to just uh, add some things to my art. So here's the piece I showed earlier. This was a, a piece that I made of my main character, Grace, from the Shiver in the Dark comic book. And it's hard to see here. There's her face. But it looks like it has glares on it down here around her hands. Oh, I see. That's my glare. That's airbrush. And a lot of comic book people wouldn't draw in black and white and then add those grays in with airbrush. But it's another wrinkle. It's another thing I can do. I went crazy with this one and did this one all airbrush. I, like I just wanted to see what the thing does. I'm not used to using it. So it's a, a, a different approach. Um, I think you've had me on the show before and I, I ink a lot with my fingers. They're relatively clean right now. <laughs> well, that's because I was working with gouache. Gouache is, is watercolor. Washes off really easily. If, it, if I'd been using ink, my hands would be stained again. Stained. So um, I will... I think um, I remember I remember being at uh, the Mid Ohio Comic Con one time, and it was Sunday. It was a really good show, but it was Sunday, and there were about two hours left in the day. And uh, I was just kind of wandering around. Thought I'd take a few minutes and say hi to some people I knew. The show was slowing down. You know what I mean? And Bill Sinkevich was there, and he's an incredible talent as we know and there was a fan who came up to him who was very gushing and loved his stuff and was very polite and you know said all the right things and said i know i got here late is there time could you make a sketch for me and bill's an absolute pro and of course he can and he said yes what would you like and the fan said well i'd really love your electric and i get an electra and you could see it bill been drawing last three days in the whole show and he got asked for electra and it was just 
I've done Electra, you know, <laughs> and you know, it's just it's like it's like asking Paul McCartney to sing Kate Jude again, and he says, you know, I've done other things, right? <laughs> so I remember him had that look and I said, okay, and he said, no, no, I know you want it, that's fine, you know. And the thing that that uh, was funny was I saw him um, pull it together. You know, he he said, well, the guy wants Electra. I draw Electra. I'm going to make a nice one. He made a wonderful one. But I never thought it was like, so what happens after you've done this long enough to keep from falling into that trap of drawing the same Batman you've already drawn or doing something again and again and again? And after that happened, I kept thinking about it. And here's what's weird. Here's the second half of the story. I got the best answer for this from all places. I was at a KISS convention because I did the covers for the Kiss, the comic book for the rock band. And one of the guests there, let's see if I can date you guys here, was Mark Slaughter. Really? Of the band Sla- yes, of the band Slaughter. <laughs> you didn't see this coming, did you? No. So Mark Slaughter was there, and he got on stage, and he sang two songs. You know what they are. He sang Up All Night, Sleep All Day, and he sang Fly to the Angels. And I asked him, I said, I want to ask you a question. I didn't know him very well. He was, I mean, I was a guest, but he was really a guest, okay? And I said, I want to ask you a question. It might sound rude. It's not. I asked with great respect. I said, you can see I've had to draw, you know, Batman, Spider-Man, whatever, 10 times over, 100 times over. And I said, you've been singing that song for 30 years. How do you keep it fresh? And I, he took, took the question wonderfully, and he knew it was coming from a place of real interest and he said here's the thing he said i've sung that song for 30 years but for everybody in here it's their first time and he said i always try to remember it's the first time that they've heard it and so they're going to enjoy it like it's fresh and i need to try to enjoy it as though it's fresh because that's that's the moment that's how it's going to be and um i think that's the best answer and i don't know what bill did to get through that electric drawing but hopefully he sat down and he just said what can i do with it that i haven't done if you can do that i think this stuff stays fresh and you, you use different art styles you ask about format the moment you stop asking you're probably dead because somebody's going to come along who's faster and smarter more engaged more excited and they'll come up with a new thing you just hit a mole in a place that electra never had a mole and you're going to mm-hmm. find it as I, Wait, yeah, does Electra might have a mole? I don't know. <laughs> so you're going to be in Chicago in July, right, at the, the the Fan Expo Chicago, right? And I'll also be at C2E2 later in the year, though I don't remember the date on that one off the top of my head. So if someone comes yeah. up to you and asks you to draw something, what would that something be? Uh, listeners, if you want to go and ask him to draw something. Yeah. Uh, what would that be that would just be like, okay, that's awesome. Like something that you maybe haven't drawn, would like to draw, could draw, but it would just be like, it would surprise you if a person came up and asked you to draw that. Uh, so if I get that, it's the moments I get the answer, that means I'm going to get asked for this forever. So I got to be careful here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got so two answers for this. So my favorite people always ask me what's my favorite thing to draw. My favorite thing to draw is I like to draw cartoons of my friends. I can't do it anymore because I got married, but it used to be cartoons of my friends trying to pick up girls. That was my favorite thing to draw, period. Particularly if I knew, you know, who they dated recently or what they were interested in or if I had seen them try to put the moves on into what their lines were and I could, you know, write this out. And thankfully, because a lot of more cartoonists, they knew how to give give it right back. You know, if I bloody their nose, they gave it right back. But that's my favorite thing to draw because you're drawing for an audience you know really well and you can make something that's really personal and it's funny. I think anybody who's good at telling stories to be good at, you need to be good at telling a joke. I don't think there's any good drama actor who's really good who can't also do comedy. You have to know timing. Um, But with that in mind, I don't think that's what I could draw for most everybody else. Um, uh, I can tell you I'm a big Flash Gordon fan and I never get asked for it anymore. I've always liked Flash Gordon. Um, You know, I particularly like Alex Raymond from 1934. Who says that? Um, I like the Micronauts. You know, that's really for the how cool that is. What's that? that? That's such an overlooked comic. It was so cool. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
I'm trying to think what, so you, you, the thing that's funny about it is, um, I made a Dr. Doom one time and I liked Dr. Doom a lot and it looked really, really good. And I did it, uh, at a show, I think it was Seattle and I drew it really early in the show. And that was a great big show. And the guy who had it carried it around and showed it to a lot of people. And so I remember Jay Lee saw it and he, somebody came to my table who said he saw Jay Lee. He said, are you taking commissions? And they said, yeah, uh, yeah. What would you like? And he said, Jay Lee said, I had to get a Dr. Doom. And I said, okay, yeah, I'd make a good Dr. Doom. And so he did this more than once. And so I sometimes feel like if you make something that's really cool and it appears on the internet, then everybody asks you for it and it, it snowballs and it just rolls and rolls and rolls. And so I get asked for Dr. Doom a lot. I love drawing him, but I think it just as easily could have been that I drew Galactus, but it, it just didn't end up that way. Um, what would I, oh gosh. Here's what I usually do. If somebody asks me for a commission, they always try to pick something that I like, right? You always feel like if you pick some of the artists like you're going to get a better piece. And what I usually say is let's do this instead. What if you tell me what you want and I agree to be honest and tell you whether or not I'm interested. Um, I remember I was, when I was like 15 or 16, the first commission I ever got was from Bob Layton who was doing a store signing. And uh, I had my $20 bill, which is all I had would you make a drawing for me? And he said, sure. And I remember he said, what would you like? And I thought he's probably tired of doing Iron Man, right? He's done a lot of Iron Mans. And I said, how about an Ant-Man? He did a cool Ant-Man series uh, in Marvel. What was it? Feature or something like that. And he said, I'll do it life size. And I thought, okay, you don't want Ant-Man. Let's figure something else out. But he, he let me know that was not what he wanted and I didn't argue. So I said, well, how about a Dr. Doom? And he said, that would be just fine. And so it, there was a little back and forth and I wanted to get something that he would enjoy. And I got a great piece. Well, um, I always tell people, I, it's what's weird. We, we, I think most artists, not all of them, but most artists have, do have an emotional connection to this. I've never been a big Zatanna fan. I think she's harder for me to connect with, but at the same time, I really like Black Canary. They're both girls with stockings and a, you know, a black sort of outfit that's somewhat similar to draw. But one of them, I feel like I've known since I was, you know, nine years old when I read Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And the other one was this thing that when I was little, had a, a weird blue jumpsuit costume. So when I saw her in this later costume, I kept looking at her like, that's not, that's not even Zatanna. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so don't overlook that emotional reaction. How's so, that? So I, th I think that sounds great. Uh, I, what I heard is uh, Howard the Duck. Uh, mm -hmm. Ask him for Howard the Duck the entire day. Oh, I've drawn Howard the Duck for somebody. <laughs> my my two best friends just beg me to draw Howard the Duck. It's their favorite thing. I drew, so I told you I like to draw cartoons, my friends. I was waiting in line, they're waiting in jury duty, and I drew a cartoon of one of my friends at the drawing table, not doing a very good job with Howard the Duck heckling him. Because <laughs> he loves Howard the Duck, That's and nice. Howard the Duck was like, it's like, so you say you know what good comics look like, as though I'm a good comic <laughs> and you're supposed to be making one, you know, but what you do to have fun. Well, do not forget, listeners, to check out Shiver in the Dark, uh, just a beautiful, Please. beautiful looking book. And keep a lookout for any of this gentleman's work. It's always great. Take the opportunity. The, the Shiver in the Dark is gives you a very interesting opportunity like he was talking about. It's got two different periods of his artwork in it, which as a listener to music and, and a lover of art, it is one of my favorite things to do to see what the artist is doing now and then see where they came from and how they started going down the road that they're on. It is just so much fun. You get so much more out of it sometimes when you're able to see it with that perspective. And it's it's, it's just, all me, but yeah, you're, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, there's, there's always a growth and uh, it's a little bit like having a, a boat in the ocean, you know, the ocean's going to take you someplace you can steer, but believe me, if the ocean wants to take you someplace, it will. So um, anyway, I will tell you this before I go out, my website is right over my shoulder back there at stuartsager.com. If you like that Batman and Joker facing off against each other, that was a Joker cover I did. And of course, I want to sell you some comic books. I've got a lot of exclusives up there. I've got exclusive G.I. Joe and Transformers and Kiss and uh, whatever else. I don't even remember Transformers. Did I say that? <laughs> There's a Walking Dead. There's plenty. 
So. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us. It is always a pleasure to see you. We we love your work, and we look forward to seeing you in the future. Will I see you at Chicago? Probably not. <laughs> what? <laughs> what kind of answer is that? It, it depends on... Richard? On... That is an anniversary weekend so. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of why <laughs> we if it was chicago we both want to be there but unfortunately oh, i love chicago work. used to live there but well uh, i'll tell you what do this because i haven't gotten to see a lot of people you asked about the pandemic it's been nice to be able to do this but this is not the same as seeing no. everybody in person i'm usually stuck at my table come by and say hi i mean then absolutely. whenever whenever we're someplace together absolutely absolutely absolutely